If you would please open to 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll be picking back up here. I'm going to read 11 verses. You can follow along and then we'll have a, just a you know, uh, study this through. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has cleansed from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his lifetime in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, in lusts, in drunkenness, in revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regards to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of deception, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. As good stewards of the man manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you as we open up your word this morning. We know, Lord, we need your spirit to move. We need your spirit to illuminate, to bring to light to your truths here in your word by your spirit. But illuminate that to us specifically and personally that you would speak to our hearts and speak into our minds and transform our minds by the reading of your word. But that may that then go to the hearts and have a change of hearts and be a heart of wanting to be in your will and for your purpose to please you in all the things we say and we do. We thank you for this time and gathering in your name, in Jesus' name. And we all said, Amen. We see here Peter is writing to believers and to not only Jewish believers, but also Gentiles who became believers in the Asia Minor area. And as we've been following along in his letter, he has been very direct, very specific, and sometimes very difficult to, to, to chew on because it's con very convicting at times. It can be very challenging at times. But today in chapter 4, we're going to see that Peter is going to take off the pressure a little bit. And he's going to use these words to encourage us in the faith. To encourage us through what part of the things, why would they need to be encouraged? Well, we know the theme of the, this whole letter is all about those being uh, suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. Not suffering because they've messed up their own lives because they decided to live like the world. No, no, no. We're talking about suffering because of their identity now in Christ. Choosing to follow Christ with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But they were struggling with these things. And so Peter gives practical encouraging instructions here in chapter 4. We'll take the first 11 verses, but it's still there because he wanted to emphasize the point to all of us that Christ is our example of having this enduring faith during suffering. And in order to endure suffering, Christians are to arm themselves, we will see as in the scripture, with Christ-like attitudes. 
You don't arm yourself with your, your, your shot off and your, your little hidden pistol permit. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the Christian-like attitudes that you must have as you live your life. And yes, through a life that is suffering in so many ways. But to have that Christ-like attitudes of commitment, of courage, of wisdom, of prayer, and of service to God with this Christ-like faith. That is how and what we're called to do. Now, in order to maintain this Christ-like attitude or attitudes through our proper conduct and suffering, living for the present day in God's will, knowing that they will live for eternity in His presence. Let me say that one more time because it's so important you understand this point is that if for us to go through suffering, to live in this life as a Christian, and we will suffer, it was only a guarantee, only how, how much, it will vary for all of us. But as we go through this, how do you properly conduct your life as you go through the suffering? It is one with an understanding, a Christ-like attitude, that we live in this present day in God's will. That is our determination. That is our focus. I want to be in God's will in every aspect of my life. And two, I know this is temporary. I know that this is only temporary because I have an eternal perspective because I know I will be in his presence in heaven. It's only a matter of time when, not if. Now, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses just the first two verses here, it said that therefore, therefore is based on what? It's based on chapter 3, verse 18, where Peter refers back to Christ's suffering and applying the principles of patient endurance. Patient endurance in how way? In what way? In an unjust suffering. You're, you're suffering and it's unjust. There's no reason you why people are doing what you're, they're doing to you. Only because of the fact that you live according to a Christ-like way. Your conduct is Christ-like. Your speech is Christ-like. Where you do not go is Christ-like. And people are going to persecute you because of that. And so, so Peter here is trying to encourage here, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also. Take up the shield just like he. Take up the, put on the helmet. The armor of God must be put on each and every day to deal with the sufferings that will kind of come our way, potentially. But you still need to be prepared. Especially with, as Peter says here, with the same mindset. A mindset. It, it's, a, it's a way of thinking. Why? Because there's a commitment. There's an attitude of commitment that you must have a mindset for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And when you look at that and you read this, we sit there and say, okay, I have a commitment to God. And God has committed to us to have and to live a certain way. And there is nothing greater than to have this commitment that Jesus had endured himself that we're to endure. To have the same attitude. There's not a giving up. There's not a, okay, I'm throwing my hands up. I'm throwing the things. I'm just going to give up because that is just, it's just too much. No, no, we need to arm ourselves like Christ who did not give up. He committed his life to completion. Jesus had endured suffering for our salvation in the last days. And these end days, we too, we need to have that commitment to God that we will endure through great struggles, through great persecution, and through great tribulation. We must have our minds set upon that. Think of what Jesus went through dealing with the sin that was placed upon him on that cross. He had to suffer because of sin. He was made sin who never sinned. It was placed upon him, our sins, on him. Our Lord came to earth to deal with sin and to conquer sin forever. That was his mission, and he accomplished it. He dealt with the ignorance of sin. How did he deal with ignorance of sin? Through the teaching 
through the teaching of the truth and living it before the men's eyes. He dealt with the consequences of sin. How did he do that? By healing and forgiving on the cross. On the cross, he dealt with the final death blow of to sin itself so that sin will no longer have power. He armed himself with an attitude of commitment toward death to sin. And he had compassionate commitment for lost sinners to do that. His compassion for lost sinners did not stop him from having an attitude of commitment to go to the cross for those lost sinners. If that is who we are to have a Christ-like attitude, an attitude of commitment, you must be willing to die to self for the lost. To share that gospel to the lost. To be praying for the lost. To be ministering to the lost. Be willing to do what Christ has done for you as when you were lost. Now you've been found. Because of his commitment. His attitude of commitment to reach you and me. Is that our, is that our commitment in our hearts as a, as a child of God? Are we willing to commit to reach the lost? How much do you pray for the lost? How much are you willing to reach out and talk to the lost? How much are you willing to... Again, yes, they have ignorance of sin, so why don't you do what Jesus does? Teach them the truth. Live your life like you are living the truth that God's Word says. That's how you overcome the ignorance of sin. How do you deal with the consequences of sin? By having a, an understanding that God can heal and forgive. The forgiveness is so key in relationships and understanding of it as, a, as we live this life. But do you forgive? Are you willing to heal that relationship? Jesus com communicated this same idea when he told us that anyone who would come after him must take up his cross and follow him. We see that in Matthew 16, 24. What does that mean? It means taking up the cross meant that you were absolutely committed to living a life that's pleasing to God and you're not willing to look back. You're not willing to go back to the old life. You're no longer wanting to be controlled by the old life or this world. You have picked up your cross. I'm committed to following Jesus and doing whatever he's asked me to do. And every aspect of your life is not just, just only on a, a Christian perspective of your life. It's not compartmentalized. Your life is your life. Not just your Christian life, and then your work life, and then you have your home life. And, no, it's one life. And it's supposed to be consistent. Not always easy. That's why you need the Holy Spirit to be fresh filling every day to empower you to live a life that's pleasing every day. See, many of us are defeated in our battles against sin in our lives because we refuse to sacrifice anything in the battle. We only want the victory. Give me the victory, but don't make me go into battle. Don't make me have to fight. Don't make me have to sweat and, and be shot at and have to deal with the persecutions. No, 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 no. I don't want to deal with any of that. Just give me victory. That's why you're, gonna, that's why you're losing. That's why you're spiritually losing in your life because you will not do what it takes to fight the spiritual battle. And it might be because you just don't know. You don't know how to fight spiritually. Because you haven't committed to understand what the Word of God is and use the Word of God in those battles. You're willing not to commit to do what it takes. You just kind of float through whatever's fun, whatever's fine, whatever's easy, whatever makes you happy. But my brothers and sisters, that's not how it works. 
You're in a spiritual battle every day. You must learn how to fight. You must learn how to commit with an attitude like Christ who says, I'm going to commit my life. I'm going to pick up my cross and follow him. But the challenge is, Jesus called us to have that kind of attitude of commitment that would sacrifice in the battle against sin. Matthew 5, verses 29 through 30. See, when a person suffers... When he suffers or she suffers physical persecution for the sake of Jesus, it almost always profoundly changes one's person. It changes their outlook regarding sin. It changes and results of the lust of the flesh. One is more likely to live the rest of his time, the scripture says here, in in the flesh and not in the lust of men, but in the will of God. There's, There's something that happens when persecution comes in, especially physically. Sometimes that's what it takes to actually snap you out of the worldly thinking that you have and the fleshly thinking that you live, and you finally say, what am I doing? What am I doing? This is not what I'm, as a Christian, I'm not to live like this. I'm, I'm, I, this is not, I cannot continue. And it, it's just like one of those moments where you're just like, I'm drawing a line, I'm stepping over, I'm not turning around anymore. And the rest of my life, I'm going to live for God in the will of God. Because at some point you must have a goal and that goal must be to cease from sinning. We will not reach this goal until we're dead or we're called home. But that still is a goal we must pursue. And we should see as we grow spiritually, we should see less and less of sin in our lives that dominate us or control us or affect us mentally. This should not we waking up every morning and say, this is the way it is. I've always been a drunkard. I've always done drugs. I've always done loss. I've always done this. This is who I am. This is what I've been. That is a heart of not a Christ-like heart. That is not a commitment to follow Jesus. You must, and I must, wake up every morning and say, I'm committing my life to you, Jesus. What do you have for me today? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to talk to? How, what, whatever it may be, he's given you the ability, especially if you're married, you have a ministry, you have kids, you have a ministry, you have you know, neighbors, you have workers, you have people at church, what you're doing, you have all kinds of different ministries. But all of those do not match your relationship with Jesus. That's got to be your number one relationship in your life. It must be a commitment to him. Understand, Peter did not say that suffering of itself would cause a person to stop sinning because we see in very clearly Pharaoh never stopped sinning. Pharaoh in Egypt, matter of fact, as the things were going and the suffering was going, it just intensified more of the fact that he was absolutely not going to change. So suffering itself doesn't always change may shock someone for a minute, but does it really change their heart and their mind? Not always. There's a lot of people who, ah, that hurt, but they're not repentant. They're not having a change of mind that says, I'm not going to do that again. We have met many people who suffer, And these suffering people who uh, turn around instead of repenting and changing and and living a life that's pleasing God, no, they turn around and they curse God and they become very bitter through their pain and they blame God for everything. So pain in itself is not something that guarantees of, of a changed heart. But when you put suffering with Christ in our lives, This can help us have victory over sin. 
Oh, how many people say, what programs do you have, Pastor, to help me through this following challenge? What groups and what life groups and what these connecting groups and all these kind of groups, groups, groups. The group isn't going to help you. Group therapy is not going to help you. Jesus is who's going to help you. And we need to teach you, if you don't know how, to have a relationship with Jesus. And if you're here sitting today and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, today's the day of your salvation. Today, you're going to hear, no question, God speak to you individually. And he's calling you to open up your heart and let him in. Please do. Don't ignore his voice when he says he loves you and he wants to save you and forgive you of your sin. But the groups are not going to help you. Therapy's not going to help you. The word of God and a relationship with Christ is who is going to transform that mind and heart. In Romans 6 states, those who are identified with Christ in his suffering and death thereby can have what? Victory over sin. I, I keep it really simple like. People who are, seems to have a ongoing, never-ending lost battles day after day, week after week. It comes down to their relationship with Christ and how much they're growing and maturing in that relationship. To have the strength of the Holy Spirit within them, to give them power. Because if you walk in the Spirit and truth, the Scripture tells you what? Tells me what? We will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It's not complex. It's just not always easy. But you have to be committed with an attitude of commitment to Christ and following him. As we yield ourselves to God, having the same attitude towards sin that Jesus had towards sin, we cannot overcome the old life and manifest the new life unless we have that attitude. You have to learn to hate sin. You have to learn to hate the, 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 the lifestyle that you created and it is calling contrary to the word of God. You must choose a different life that's pleasing to him. That's why it says here, he no longer should live the rest of his time. Peter's gave us two time references here in that one scripture alone here that is helpful in having the right attitude in following Jesus Christ. The first one, notice here, he starts off here in verse 2, that he no longer, underline those words, he no longer, so when you're sitting there and you're, 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 you should have to come to the point in your mind that every time you're tempted, your response is no longer. When sinful impulses pop up in the head, you say no longer. When someone comes and entices you once again and encourages you to go take one more drink, you'll be just fine. No longer. And a little trap called a phone gets in your hand at night and it causes you the challenge. You say, no longer. I go out shopping. I can't stop myself. I spend money more than I have. I'm not being a good steward. It's really hurting us. No longer. Is that your mindset? The second is we should carefully consider how to live the rest of our time. God has appointed us days on this earth and each of us must answer to him ultimately how we lived our time that he gave us on this earth. What did you do with the life that God has given you? Do you even ponder on that? 
Christians who have adopted Christ's mindset have counted themselves dead to sin. They live the rest of their lives not for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Oh, I desire to... No, this, you're automatically you're asking the wrong question. What do I desire? This is not about picking the right ice cream. Even though I say, Lord, which one did I have last time? I don't remember this time. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do ask the Lord to help here because I don't want to, you know. But it shouldn't be your desire for ice cream living. It should be, Lord, is this your will that I should even have ice cream? I know the answer. That's why I don't ask. <laughs> and if I ask my helper, she's going to tell me what the Lord's will is too. You know, you know the Lord don't want you to eat that ice cream. <laughs> See, the contrast between the desires of men and the will of God can be so vast. It is so, so different. The will of God is not a burden that the Father places on us. So many, so many people do. Oh, the Lord is putting a burden on, like some drudgery. It, that is not scriptural. It's a divine enjoyment. It's a divine enablement that makes all burdens light, the, the scripture tells us. Where? In Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, one of my favorite verses here. Come to me, all of you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, my burden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart that you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So don't ever get in your mind that, oh, the burden that the Lord is putting on me is so heavy. Get rid of the christian -y thing going on. And understand what the scripture says. He's saying this thing that he puts on you to ask you to do something, to be in his will, is an enjoyment and enablement to please him. Rejoice that you would even be worthy to be do what God's called you to do. we're not worthy the will of God comes from the heart of God we see that in Psalm 33 11, and therefore is an expression of the love of God that he has for you we may not always understand what he is doing by placing that on our in our lives Lord what are you doing here this is not what I asked for see there goes the there goes your thinking Again, leaning on your understanding. I didn't ask for it. So that doesn't mean, you know. But we know that is doing what is best for us. If he's placing something into our lives that causes us to cast it back upon him because of the weight, you know this is good for you. It's good for me. Understand, we live on his promises. We do not live on explanations. We live daily on his promises. We do not live on explanations. We may not always understand what he is doing, but we know it is good and it is right. In verses 3, we see Peter continues here, and he gives us about the, another Christ-like attitude, and that is one of an attitude of seeking his wisdom. It says here, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, the, world, the, the, the unsaved way, the worldly way, the, the ungodly way. We have spent most of our lives for most of us living that way. 
How? Peter even highlights just a few of those things. Why? Maybe they were prevalent in the people's lives at that time. Why he mentioned these. Or these are the ones that just came to the top of his mind. But obviously the Holy Spirit wanted these written down for this particular area. But it's not a, a, a complete list. But it says, you spent enough time in your lewdness. You've spent enough time in your life lusts. You've spent enough time as drunkards. You spend enough time in revelries and drinking parties and in abominable idolatries. That used to be your old life. BC life. Before Christ life. You spend enough time doing that and that is the will of the Gentiles. That's the will of unbelievers. And you walk like that. You practice that. You spend all this time living like the world, like the unsaved world. Now we are called to live like Christians. It is a profound and foolish waste of time for Christians to live like the world again. It's foolishness. We must simply stop being double-minded and start living as Christians. Sadly, many Christians, especially in their heart of hearts, as you would say, think that they have not spent enough time in pursuing things in the will of the ungodly. They want to experience more what the world has to offer. I've really been sheltered in my Christian little my Christian childhood. Now I'm out away from mom and dad. I want to experience the world has to offer. And that's why the percentage is so high of children that do not continue to walk with the Lord after they leave the home. Because they don't have a relationship with Christ. All they've been doing is I can't wait to get out from underneath their mom and dad so I can go live my life. And if that is speaking in your mind, then you're being convicted right now that that is sinful thinking. And you must change. You must change the way you think. Or you're, you're just going to go to destruction. Like the thousands of thousands upon thousands of many others. You don't have to. It's not what God has for you. He wants to put you on a road that is good and is right. And pleasing to him. But this is what happens. That many will sit there. And I want to experience more of the world. Before making this full commitment to godliness. But that is one of the most tragic mistakes. Anyone can make. In that thought process. That is an attitude. Is not an attitude of wisdom. It is an attitude of foolishness. There are times when looking back at your past life would be very wrong if you dwell on it. It'd be very unhelpful to you because Satan will sit there and beat you up on the memories and discourage you from continuing to, to grow and to live for Christ because you live in the past. And But we also see in the scriptures at times when you grow and you mature, those past actually becomes a praise report, Right? I used to be that way. I used to be blind, but now I see. I, I, I want to tell everyone about that. I used to wander lost everywhere. Now I actually know where I'm, where I'm going. You know, There's this whole, I was completely at the depths of, of the miry clay, and I can't, I'm just flat on my back like the prodigal son, and nothing and eating with slop of pigs. But now I have a home. God certainly urged Israel to remember that they had once been slaves in Egypt and to remind them, don't, you don't want to go back to become slaves again. We see even Paul remembered that he was a persecutor of believers. But this did not cause him not to go continue to share the gospel. That actually motivated him to go out and even more encourage him to do what Christ had called him to do. See, lewdness is this word that begins as kind of that, this list that Peter is given here. 
is, uh, is one of this no personal restraint. It is, it's this sexual immorality, this violence, this, this way of an outward public display. You, have no, you don't care what the public sees you doing and acting or anything. You're just absolutely flat out as, as lewd as can be into any setting because you want to live selfishly however you want to live. Without any sense of moral restraint. That's lewdness. Lust is all kinds of evil appetites, and it's not just sexual appetites. It can be a power appetite. I'm going to power. I have greed. I have bitterness. I, I, I'm going to lust for these things. It'll destroy you. Revelries. This pagan, loud, par wild party of carousing and, and just mixing it all up physically and mentally and spiritually. I mean, just why? Because it even turned into uh, religious prostitutes. That's how it got so bad. They think they're honoring God by sleeping around. And drinking. Living it up like the world and... Peter says, even in abominable idolatries, it's almost like a summary. <laughs> abominable idolatries. Name the thing. If it goes against the nature of God, it's just abominable. And we look at this list of lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties and abominable idolatries, we see just how little fallen man has progressed in the last 2,000 years. Think about that. These things you're thinking, oh, you're talking about today, Pastor? No, I'm talking about this is Peter saying what was happening 2,000 years ago. And we're supposed to be some more civilized societies. The scripture tells us we're going to go back to the days of Noah. But think about this. Here he is saying to what we understand and experience it today, these problems have not been solved in the time since Peter wrote this letter. We have not had been... Think about it. <laughs> you sit there and you look at that list and you go, okay, I, I, I may not have been guilty to all that list, you may sit there and say your self-righteousness kind of thing and say, well, that was none of me. Okay, let me tell, I can turn to other pages and we'll go down the rest of the list and you'll get the other 10 for you. But you might have not have done any of these gross kinds of sins in your BC days. But we have still have sinners and our sons help to crucify Christ. We know we're a sinner and that is why. How foolish to go back to the old life, Peter said. Why would you do that? The only reason why you do it is because you're not in your right mind. Regardless of how you think. You're not in your right mind if you want to go back to the old life. That's why he says here, even four, he says in regards to these, regards to these, this lifestyle and struggle between Christian life and going back to the old life, and regarding these things, they, they, your old buddies, they think you're strange. Your old girlfriends, they think you're strange. Your relatives, they think you're strange. Your friends, your neighbors, they think you're strange. The people who you thought were your friends on Facebook that you've never met, but you've got at least a thousand of them, they think you're strange and they don't even know you. Why? Because you do not run with them any longer. You don't go in the same, as the scripture here in verse 4, in the same flood of dissipation. The word is debauchery. The, the uncontrolled life of lust and living. You no longer do that. You're no longer going to the bars with them. You're no longer talking what they talk. You're not talking about the, oh, the girl's night out and the guy's night out. You're not doing these things anymore. They think you're strange. You do know that, right? Now, some of you are sitting going, my coworkers don't think I'm strange. My family doesn't think I'm strange. My friends don't think I'm strange. 
Even my own family don't think I'm strange. That is not a good thing. If you're living for Christ and you're not living like the world and thinking like the world and acting like the world and they don't think you're strange, unless you have created yourself in your own little bubble of just Christians, and sometimes that can feel like that is true, but if you're out in the work world and if you're out talking to your neighbors <laughs> and if you're in the grocery stores recently, and maybe your family's all Christians and you have no non-Christians in your family. Wow, I want to talk to you. Because I assure you, they may not say it to your face, but they think you're strange. And not only that, we see Peter says, they'll be speaking evil to you. You're going to be persecuted for being a man or a woman living for God. Do you own it? Maybe we should, in the, in the book nook, maybe we should have t-shirts. Yes, I'm strange. Maybe, maybe, maybe we can get some, some uh, merch out there for you guys so you can wear it around. It says, yes, I know you haven't told me, but yes, I'm strange. But I love Jesus. That was a joke, you did. You did know I was joking. See, when we don't participate in the sin around us, we don't walk with them. We don't talk with them like this. We convict those who are around us. They convict them of their practice in sin. And they don't like that. You can just walk into a room and say nothing and say, Good morning. It's so good to see you. Isn't it going to be a great day? And you're just, you just spent some time worshiping God. You're as, you're as bubbly as can be. Almost too bubbly. And you walk into a dark room who doesn't like Jesus and want nothing to do with anything or anyone about Jesus because they just got done talking about their weekend nights. And you walk in on a Monday morning and you're talking and they just look at you and immediately you're the poster child. You've got the, you've got the t-shirt. I love Jesus. And they know it, and immediately they're really not liking you because you're stopping their conversation. Expect persecution. Expect suffering. Expect some problems coming your way. But God says, don't worry about these things. I've got you. I've got you. See, it's, it's interesting. Is Unsaved people do not understand the radical change that their friends, you and I, have experienced. Because they've never experienced it. So they don't understand. You have really changed. And this is really strange. Why have you changed? Well, you're not going to understand it. They don't trust Jesus with their life. They didn't become a child of God. They haven't been adopted and have eternal life and all the things and the radical changes that used to complex. Because you never told everyone everything that's going on in your head. And now it's changed. And you've been free. And this 100-pound gorilla came off your back when you gave your life to Jesus. They cannot understand that if they've never gone and been, been regenerated, born again. So when they don't understand that, but think about this and how twisted this is and how dark it is. But you can turn around and look at them and say, don't you think it's strange when people literally make a decision to destroy their bodies with the drugs and alcohol? Isn't that kind of strange? That they're destroying their families because of what they, they've done? Don't you think that's strange? They've destroyed their minds doing what they're doing and living like the world. Don't you think that is strange? They've destroyed their homes. They've ruined their lives. They can't even physically function. And you as non-believers don't think that is strange? But you call me strange and I'm in my right mind. That's how twisted, my brothers and sisters, that it is. Wrong will be right, and right will be wrong. What side are you on? Are you thinking in your right mind? Or are you not? See, it's no difference. Let a drunkard become sober or immoral person pure in a family thinks he has lost his mind. 
Festus told Paul in Acts 26, 24, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. I don't know what you're reading, this Bible, and you're reading all this stuff. It's just driving you mad. I don't know. You're strange. It's coming out of your mouth. Jesus himself experienced that. We see that in Mark 3.21. He is out of his mind, they said. Why? Because Paul and Jesus do not think like the rest of the world. That's why they think it's strange. But we must be patient toward the lost. Even though we do not agree with their lifestyles, we don't agree in how they're participating in all these sins and about debauchery, and we are no longer doing that. Be patient, because that's what used to be who you were. Don't forget where you came from and how God has saved you, and now have passion and commitment to reach the lost. And after all, the unsaved are blind to spiritual truth. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. So when people don't get it, when they don't hear the gospel, and they're not responding, they're just spiritually blind. That means you need to be praying more for that blindness to be lifted so they could hear and to receive. And we are the bearers of this truth. They need to hear God's truth. And let us be the witness that God uses. We see, obviously, in chapter 3, verse 15. In verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So right here, when you think about all this going on, understand, even though they may be persecuting you, you don't have to persecute them. You don't have to retaliate because you know with passion they're going to be accountable to God. They're going to meet God. And God's going to judge them far greater and more justly than you will. So Peter says, they're going to come to a time when their account's going to have to be paid. I paid your debt. Your account is completely debt-free. It is gone. But their debt is filled with guilt and shame and sins and stuff, and they're going to have to pay it. And they're going to meet God, and they're going to have to come up with it. And they're going to have to give their life for it. So when the accounts are settled, all who live in the sins Peter described will come to understand they were just living foolish lives. Even though you can talk to some, and they'll say, oh, I have a good life. How's your life going? Oh, I have a good life. They've got all the bells and whistles. They think they have a good life, but they live foolishly. They live the world's ways, and his life is a waste compared to eternity. See, that's what it is. When you live in an attitude of foolishness, it is nothing but wasteful. You're wasting your life. That is what Peter is saying here. It's a wasted life that will never result in what they think they're pursuing. For this reason, verse 6, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead and that, <clears throat> that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the spirit. Now, there are some verses that are very difficult and Peter throws out some very difficult verses here. There's two of them in, in his letter, and this is the second one right here to understand. Let me see if I can follow through for you to help you understand. But Peter says that because of eternal judgment, the gospel must be preached to all. And the righteous dead known and live on the constant awareness of the reality of eternity. And are rewarded by this understanding if they live according to God in the Spirit. Now we learn back in chapter 3, verse 19, when Jesus died on the cross and before his resurrection, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And that preaching was a preaching of judgment. It was one of, I've conquered death. You are judged for eternity. It is a clear message to the demonic forces where he preached. Or to those who rejected them and did not want to trust and live by faith in God. But apparently at the same time, Jesus 
also preached a message of salvation to the faithful dead in Abraham's bosom that was referred to in Luke 16:22, who by faith participated in the work of the message of the, of the Messiah for them. They trusted by faith, like Abraham, by faith that God was sending the Messiah to, to rule and reign, and they were waiting for a great anticipation that to happen. But they died. God took their life and placed him prior to Jesus on the cross in a place called Abraham's bosom. Now this preaching to those who are dead was not, was not to offer a second chance to those who died. To those who were already dead in their sins and had rejected Jesus on this side of the grave, this is not a second chance for them to go in and Jesus to preach for them to give their life to Jesus. But this was to come and speak to those who had faith, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to say, it is finished. What you live by faith, it is finished. Just as you knew it was stated in the Old Testament and in the law by Moses, it is finished. In doing this, Jesus fulfilled the promise that he had he would lead the captivity captive, Psalm 68:18, Ephesians 4:8. He would proclaim liberty to the captives and in the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, Isaiah 61:1, Luke 4:18. Now, in these last days, everyone will know and have heard and have seen God has revealed himself. Somehow, some way, to every single person that was ever created of who he is. Now, what's interesting is that when we look in verse 7, we see an attitude of a serious prayer. By the end of all things is at hand, therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. Peter says, if you really believe that we live in the last days, that the end, day, end times are here, that it is all the more appropriate that we give ourselves to what? Serious and watchful prayers. Notice I'm saying that very slowly. Not just to pray, but to serious and watchful prayers. See, many Christians who believe that Jesus is coming soon, based on prophecy charts or what's going on in the news, and all these events, and you can see it lining up with the scripture, and these are all good. I'm, I'm not saying they're not, not good, that bad. But we can get ourselves wrapped around that, and that's all we do. Did you hear what's happening in Israel? Did you hear what's happening in Damascus? Did you hear what I, all these people were going to I'm one of those people who watch those things. Why? Because I know Ezekiel. I know Ezekiel 38. I know Ezekiel 39. And when you see these things, get excited because Jesus is coming. But if I only stop there in my thought process about end times, then I'm not really doing what the scripture tells me. Because right here, Peter says that we must drive us when we see these things. It should apply to the fact that we should then diligently be praying. When we know it's end times, we know it's the latter days, we know Jesus come back, you and I should be doing the most important thing, and that is absolute Serious and watchful prayers because Jesus is coming back. And what is that word here in your Bible? It says saying being serious. It, you, your Bible may say sober-minded. It's the same thing. Be sober-minded in your prayers. Be, be serious in your prayers. It's a weighty inter, eternal, eternity kind of a thing. Eternity is rushing toward us, and it, it, it's coming. He's coming. But, but we take prayer so lightly. We don't even think about talking about God, about eternity, or people's eternal, eternity destination. They, we just kind of go about our day, and we only pray when we really want something. We see in the scripture here, we are supposed to be serious and watchful. Christians in the early church expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. Did you know that? 2,000 years ago, they were on the edge of their seat every day saying, today's the day Jesus is coming back. 
The fact that he did not return does not invalidate his promise. His promise says he's coming back. And no matter what we must do, all we do is to live with this expectancy of his return. Perhaps today, Lord, today's the day you come back for me. You come back for your church. Wouldn't that be great? If the rapture happened today. Solves all your problems. No matter what, we must live, all live, with the expectancy of his return. And the important thing is that we see and we understand that we shall see the Lord one day and stand before him. That should dominate your mind. How we live and serve today will determine how we are judged and rewarded in that day. He continues here in eight, verses 8 through 11. He says, And above all things, have fervent love for one, and, for one another, for the love will cover a multitude of sins. So here's an attitude of love that should be a Christ-like attitude as you're waiting for the Lord's return, as you're living for him, as you have this committed to life for following him and you have a, want the wisdom of God, you really want to live for God. Then it should result in a service attitude. And it says here that there is in these end times and last days when it is so important for you and I to love those who are going to spend eternity with us. In light of eternity, we must have this fervent prayer. Fervent means reaching out, committed, passionate love for another person in the faith. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The word here is agape love. It's the same fruit of the Spirit. That should be bearing in our lives. As you and I live our lives and we know it's the end times, there should be this fervent love for other people. You should be expressing it. You should be outreaching and committed to that love. Unconditional love toward a brother and sister. That is how we know we're growing. And it says here, Peter says, love will cover a multitude of sins. Why does he say that? Because we're sinners, saved by grace. And there's times when we're in fellowship, you have, it might be small sins. We might have sinned against someone. It might be small in the fact that it wasn't major. There's some major sins where it's blatant and there's some other things. And we're not going to get into the details of that. But sin is sin. And love will have a cover of a multitude of those sins. When a, when a brother or sister nips at you, are critical and judgmental and all these things that can happen when someone may not be in good space. You need to love them unconditional to cover that sin so that you continue to live and dwell in unity because you understand eternity. You're going to be worshiping and loving our Jesus for eternity with this person. But we're supposed to do it now. We're to love now. To express that love now. To live that life now. And he says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. But our Christian love is, shouldn't be just words or just forgiving. But we, that needs to be practical. And so we see Peter says here in verse 9, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. See, love will show itself practically in hospitality. Christians should often open up their homes to others and do it all without grumbling and without complaining. I mean, think about this. When you see this, open up your homes. That's what you, they did in those days. Because they didn't have hotels. They didn't have inns. They didn't have restaurants. People opened up their homes and they gave to even strangers and to those in need in passing. Jesus experienced the hospitality. The apostles experienced that hospitality. We are to open up our homes and realize our homes is really Christ's home. The resources that he's given us is his resources he gave to us to help not only for us, but all for those he brings to your door in time of need. But we see here that without grumbling, and Peter had to state that because it obviously recognizes that the practical application of loving another person by opening up their home to that person of godly hospitality could be costly to you. 
It could be a burdensome to you. It could be an irritating. It could be very inconvenient for you to open up your house and have people come into your house. It could be very inconvenient for you and very costly. And you don't want to show love in that way. All you can say, oh, let me show you love. Let me help you introduce you to my neighbor. You can go to his house. That's not what it says. When God brings that person to your home, are you willing to show godly love by opening your home to that person? But I don't know them. But if God is saying to you to open up the home, are you going to say no to God? Or are you going to show love? I still remember the day getting a call from my wife and saying, there's a, I forget how all the thing worked out, but it was a, a, a sister from Canada, and she came over to get it renewed, her, her, her visa, and she got trapped. She couldn't go back across the border, all the way up to Plattsburgh. But she was such a mature Christian. She made a phone call to the nearest person, place. She, she, oh, Calvary Chapel. I know Calvary Chapel. That's where I go. I'll call down in Watertown. There's a Calvary Chapel. And we didn't know who this person was. We didn't know any of the... But we knew that God was saying, yes, come down. And she went to the lady's Bible study, and then she stayed in our house. We had dinner with her. We took care of her. We couldn't allow a sister to be on the streets and not have any money and not be able to do anything. God has called us to open our homes to do that. And that was such a blessing to us. We were the ones blessed because we got to hear all about her ministry and what she was doing and reaching the, the, uh, the, uh, the trafficking of people across board. I mean, it was amazing what God was doing. We were the blessed ones. But most people, if you don't have the gift of hospitality, you would sit there, I'm not allowing any woman in this, anyone we don't know in this house. But that's where we must learn to grow because hospitality is a virtue that is commanded and commended throughout the scriptures. Moses included in law, Exodus 22. Jesus enjoyed hospitality. The apostles enjoyed hospitality. Human hospitality is a reflection of God's hospitality to us, Luke 14, 16. And if you think you're going to be a Christian leader, it's one of the qualifications to be a Christian leader. You must have the gift of hospitality. Because you'll be opening your house to more strangers and more people from the church than you ever thought you would ever be. And it's a great thing. Verse 10. And each one has received a gift, a spiritual gift. Minister it to one another. As good stewards of the manifold, this manifestation, this multifaceted way of grace of God, how he plays this all out. Love will show itself as we give to the church family what God has given to us as gifts. We have all been received a gift or spiritual gifts, and we are to then use those for the body of Christ. If you are not, everyone here qualifies to serve in the church. All of you. And that's not a question. Eh, I might not. No, no, you're, you and I are to serve. He's given you as a believer a gift. You are to use that for the body of Christ. Sitting back and just receiving the gifts from everyone else is very selfish. We're to give. In the capacity of how he has given you the gifts to do it. And in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is what Paul's, the Peter is saying here. You received a gift. You need to minister it to one another. You need to be good stewards of what God has given you by the grace of God. You must love the people that way. A Christ-like attitude of service must flow from your life as you mature. Yes, there are speaking gifts. There are serving gifts. Both are equally important. Not everyone is a teacher. A preacher. But every one of us needs to be a witness for Christ. They're behind the scene ministries and they're public ministries. And the public ministries would never happen if the behind the scene ministries were not faithful in doing what they're doing. And you can go back to Romans 12, 1 through 13. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. 
Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Study the spiritual gifts. Know what God's given you as a spiritual gift as a believer. And then pray and ask God to help you to exercise that gift within the body of Christ appropriately. And finally here in verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability with God, which God supplies. And that in all things, God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. That's the main thing. Whatever we do, make sure it's because it's to please and to glorify Jesus Christ. If it doesn't, don't do it. Please don't do it. Why? Because he gets all the glory. To whom belongs the glory and the dominion, the power forever and ever. Every believer has the ability to serve God. Are you? We never ask you to serve. Because we know if you grow and mature and you keep showing up, you're going to grow and mature. And eventually, God's going to show you and you're going to say, I'd like to serve. Where's the need? Okay, what spiritual gift or gifts do you have? I don't know. Well, let's sit down and let's look through that and let's, let's test it. We'll know quickly if it's a spiritual gift or not. And we'll place you into the places where there's needs to help for the body of Christ. And you get to be blessed and you get to be rewarded for your faithfulness of doing what God's empowering you to do. It's amazing. See, we are stewards of many things. And God has entrusted these gifts to you and I. We might use them for the good of his church. And he gives us the spiritual ability to, in a development of our gifts. We can, our gifts can be developed. It takes time to mature and be faithful servants of the church. God gives us the gifts, the abilities, and the opportunities to use the gift. He alone must be glorified through it all. And as we serve one another, we do it with the strength God provides. Where God guides, he provides. And we must make sure we seek him in all things about that. Even the ability which God supplies, as it states here in verse 11. And the power and the glory, all of that. He gets it all. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's always about him. Amen.